Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. The war in Ukraine recently entered the much-anticipated phase of the second counteroffensive by Kyiv. The last one was a startling success, gobbling up territory that had been seized during the Russian invasion and giving the West hope that against all odds, the Ukrainians might be able to drive Russian forces back. The second counteroffensive has gone nowhere near as well, with the Kyiv Independent, a news outlet highly loyal to the Ukrainian government, reporting a pause and a reassessment of strategy. With Putin's mobilization of hundreds of thousands of draftees and his overwhelming supply of artillery, Ukraine can't handle a war of attrition. Meanwhile, Putin recently unveiled what he said was a tentative peace agreement reached back in March 2022, in which Russia agreed to retreat to the territory it held before February 23rd of that year, which would give it control of significant parts of the Donbass and also Crimea. In exchange, Ukraine would agree not to join NATO and to downsize its military, but would enter into security agreements with the U.S. and other EU countries. Around that same time, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was sounding hopeful about a peace deal. Here's a report from March 16, 2022 on Democracy Now!, which also references an exchange I had at the time with then-White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. So I wanted to ask you about the state of negotiations to end this war. The Ukrainian President Zelensky suggested earlier today that Russian demands are becoming more realistic. Everyone should work, including our representatives, our delegation, for negotiations with the Russian Federation. It is difficult, but important, as any war ends with an agreement. The meetings continue, and I am informed the positions during the negotiations already sound more realistic. But time is still needed for the decisions to be in the interests of Ukraine. Zelensky's remarks came a day after he acknowledged he doesn't expect Ukraine to join NATO anytime soon, which is very significant. And during a news conference yesterday, um, The Intercept's Ryan Grimm asked White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki what the U.S. is doing to advance peace negotiations and whether the U.S. would lift its sanctions on Russia if it reached a peace deal with Ukraine. This is just a small part of what she said. Aside from the request for weapons, President Zelensky has also requested that the U.S. be more involved in negotiations toward a peaceful resolution to the war. What is the U.S. doing to push those negotiations forward? Well, one of the steps we've taken, a significant one, is to be the largest provider of military and humanitarian and economic assistance in the world to put them in a greater position of strength as they go into these negotiations. We also engage and talk to the Ukrainians on a daily basis. And the president and this national security team has, has uh, rallied the world in being unified in their opposition to the actions of President Putin. So those are the steps we're taking. We also engage uh, oftentimes before and after any conversations that any of these uh, global leaders are having with both Russians and Ukrainians and encourage them to make sure they're engaging with Ukrainians directly. So would Zelensky be empowered by the United States to reach an agreement with Russia and have U.S. sanctions 
released as a result? Well, he's the leader of Ukraine, so he's empowered to have a negotiation with Russia, and we're here to support those efforts. Again, I'm not going to get ahead of a negotiation, but we are here to support those efforts. We discuss and have conversations with him, with his team on a daily basis. According to former U.S. diplomat Fiona Hill, writing in Foreign Affairs, a deal similar to the one Putin recently outlined was scuttled by the West, which insisted Ukraine fight on instead. Around this time, the horrific war crimes by Russian forces in Bucha were uncovered, changing the shape and tenor of the war, which I'll talk about with my next guest, Ahmed Khan. Now, today's episode is not about the politics or the geopolitics of the war in Ukraine, and it's not a dissection of military strategy or tactics either. Instead, I wanted to talk to Ahmed about what life has been like on the ground there since the invasion and since the failed peace talks. Ahmed Khan is an unusual figure on the international scene. He was briefly in the diplomatic service during the Clinton administration, but was frustrated there and joined the world of humanitarian relief instead, spending several years in Rwanda. But he got frustrated by that bureaucracy too. Independently wealthy, he's become something of a lone wolf humanitarian relief organizer, visiting different global hotspots over the decades. Since the war broke out in Ukraine, he's spent most of his time there. As he talks about in our interview, his work has also gone beyond just food, water, and medical supplies, as he also supplied Ukrainian troops with the now famous drone that a Russian soldier recently surrendered to on video. If you haven't seen that story yet, check out the Wall Street Journal's video report on it from earlier this month. We recorded this conversation last week while he was on the ground there in Ukraine, about a thousand yards from the Russian front line, amid the floodwaters from the recent destruction of the dam. Uh, Ahmed Khan, thank you so much for joining me on Deconstructed. Uh, my pleasure. Great to be here with you, Ryan. And, and so without giving too much away, uh, can you talk a little bit about you know, where you are and what you're doing like right now? Like, What, what time is it uh, where you are and what's going on in the area where you are? It's uh, 9 p.m. on June 15th. Is it Thursday? And I am uh, a little bit downstream from the Novokovka Dam, which was destroyed, uh, partially destroyed last week. Um, I suppose the first week of June, right? And I've been actually working in this area for about eight or nine months uh, since liberation of these villages. Um, they're on the West Bank of the Dnieper River. The east bank of the river is still controlled by uh, the Russians. And, you know, I've been supplying uh, food, clothing, medicine, generators, because uh, when the Russians withdrew, they they cut the mobile network, they cut the power, and uh, they cut the water. So uh, power, water, and uh, communication are the three most urgent needs. So uh, since the flood, obviously the needs have uh, multiplied. But again, it's the, the same big three, uh, water, power, and communication. And then so much more, um, you know, the houses are, so many houses are completely destroyed. So people are trying to clean out their houses. So those are providing um, water pumps, power washers, wheelbarrows, uh, you know, sort of really, really basic stuff. And in one of the videos or a couple of the videos that you sent me, you're sloshing around, you're seeing kind of mud inside of houses. We've been working in this area for for many months, and now you can see what's left. This is the living room. This is what's left. The chair, this is our life. Everything that was in this, the ground is mud. What's the, what's the broader landscape look like there in the wake of the, the dam destruction? 
it's complete devastation. Um, they, you know, let's say a tip, one of the villages pre-war population was, let's say about 2000 and today it's about 200. Uh, well, before the dam destruction, it was about 200. And since the dam destruction, it's about 400. I met some people who were with their children in Germany and, uh, Poland and they actually came back because these are the houses that they were born in that are, you know, actually nearly destroyed. So the interiors are, uh, everything inside is destroyed, covered with mud. Many of them have water to the knee still. And, you know, the houses continue to collapse because they're older structures. So as the water sort of gets into the foundation or, you know, in many cases, the water was above the roof. So houses continue to collapse. So people are just trying to figure out, you know, where do they go? And much of the population is, uh, is on the older side. So uh, these are the sort of people that do not will not be evacuated. I mean, they just refuse. You know, plenty of people have been evacuated, but many people just don't, can't leave their, you know, the homes that there were, many of them were born in. And there's a lot of speculation out there that Russia did this to the dam. If if they did, like, what would be the advantage? Like, as, as you're seeing the carnage, what is the effect on the positions of both the kind of Ukrainians and, and the Russians there. And what's the effect on the population and why would it benefit the Russians to do this? Well, I've given up, uh, I've been here in Ukraine for most of the last 16 months since the invasion. So I've sort of given up on trying to figure out why they do certain things. They, they bombed the McDonald's in Odessa two nights ago, June 13th. And I've personally visited uh, hundreds of apartment buildings, hospitals, uh, senior centers, nursery schools, uh, shopping malls, um, you name it, uh, car dealers, gas stations that have been uh, objects of Russian missile attacks, rocket attacks. So I've sort of given up trying to figure out why they do stuff. In fact, we were in a boat, you know, in a flooded area on a, on a street uh, going between de- demolished houses. And I think I sent you this video. We came under uh, a shelling. This was a road now completely flooded. And you hear the shelling in the background. Yeah. Oh, we must I'm trying to figure out, you know, what exactly they're shelling. Uh, it's a completely destroyed village with a few old people living there, and uh, no military or police or anyone else in sight. And so I, I, I really, I mean, I suppose from a military perspective, and I'm not sort of some expert on that stuff, but. I suppose they could have done it to uh, slow the counteroffensive, but uh, you know, many many people sort of speculate that they they try to do it to sort of defeat the Ukrainian spirit. But you know, it's been going on for 16 months, and that hasn't really worked. So you'd think they'd come up with an alternate uh, plan. But I, I, you know, I quite honestly, I, I have no idea. When the devastation is just unbelievable, but it's nothing that's any different with what I've seen over the last 16 months. Um, some of this land will, I don't know when it will recover. I've, I'm in touch with some local scientists and they say it could be decades. To step back a little bit, how, how did you get involved in this, in this kind of humanitarian work? What was the, what was the first, what was your first foray into this? <laughs> well, I was a political appointee in the Clinton administration working for the, uh, working for the director of the United States Peace Corps in my early 20s. And uh, Rwandan genocide uh, was happening in this, and the, uh, I just sort of didn't really like Washington. Uh, no offense to anyone from Washington, but uh, I uh, I wanted to get out there in the world, 
And so I, uh, I got a job with the International Rescue Committee and um, became an administrator in a series of refugee camps that were along the Rwandan Burundi Tanzania border and lived there for almost two years. So that was the first time I, uh, that was my first, and I, I suppose I've spent the majority of the last 25 years overseas doing this sort of stuff one way or another. How would you compare the scenes that you encountered when you first got to Ukraine 16 months ago to what you're seeing now when it comes to both kind of physical devastation, but also also morale? The morale remains high because the Ukrainian spirit is, is strong and they just persevere through everything and they'll never give up and never be defeated because this is something that's been going on for three to 400 years pretty continuously and they, it's, 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 it's part of their DNA. Uh, the physical destruction is something that uh, I've never seen anywhere. I mean, I've worked in Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, Rwanda, like I said, and there, there is significant infrastructure in Ukraine, you know, at a different level and it's been demolished and it continues to be demolished. And I suppose the, the initial destruction that happened around the cities of Kiev and Kharkiv, which were the first places that I saw when I first arrived shortly after the invasion, you, you saw, well, the Russians had in, almost encircled Kiev. So if you drive to Kiev now, if you approach from the West, you'll see destroyed gas stations, supermarkets, schools. So the Russians were very close. So the physical destruction and, and you know, thousands and thousands of houses and apartment buildings. Um, but it, it's pretty much continued. Um, they will launch long-range rockets and missiles uh, nightly at cities, you know, far away from the front. What's the reconstruction like? Like, is there is there any going on in, in midst in the midst of the conflict, or is it is it on hold for some type of a ceasefire? Well, uh, Bucha and Arpi in the suburbs of uh, Kiev that were the site of uh, mass graves and significant war crimes have managed to really clean up, and uh, people start fixing their houses, and uh, the apartments are in reconstruction. But you know, some other places. The devastation is just so immense, and and the, and the, you know the shelling and rockets and missiles continue. So it it, it kind of doesn't really make sense. Or so if you take a city like Kharkiv, where uh, many schools are destroyed, uh, like say the the gymnasium, the center, you know the main sports center with a pool and the basketball court and all that, that's all destroyed. So I don't know how they would start building that again because the rocket attacks continue. So are kids going to school? Like, and, and what's the economy? Like, are people going to work amid the war? Obviously, it's got to be different on the front lines, but how far back from the front lines do you feel like you're really in the thick of a war? And how far do you have to go until you're, until you're someplace where the, you, can, you're, you know that there's a war going on, but life is a little bit more normal? On the schools, it's really difficult. Some schools in the western part of Ukraine operate. Uh, some schools in Kiev operate. Many schools operate online. Many schools don't open because they don't have a bomb shelter, right? An underground bomb shelter. And, you know, you'd sort of think it's 2023. Why would my school need an underground bomb shelter? So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, really, a, a really sad thing. I, I uh, rebuilt a number of orphanages and I'm always asking, is the school open yet? And they said, no, they, we can't open because we don't have an underground bomb shelter. And it's a relatively new school, right? And so they, would, they wouldn't have thought about building an underground bomb shelter. So actually the older schools are the ones that, that operate because they have um, underground bomb shelters. In terms of 
feeling the war, you sort of feel it everywhere because the sirens are going off all day everywhere. So I suppose the area where you would feel it least is uh, the southwest along the Hungarian and Romanian border, um, the Zakarpatia area, the mountainous area. In terms of city, probably Lviv is the one you would feel at least, but they have sirens, you know, three or four times a day and and a rocket or missile attack, uh, you know, well, pretty regularly. Those are air raid sirens. Yeah, those are air raid sirens, like missile missile sirens. We're, and correct. so, what do you? How much time do you have? What's the? How does that? How does that work? You ha- you hear the siren, you have, you know, X minutes to get into a bomb shelter. Well, essentially, that's that's how it's supposed to work. And of course, we're 16 months in, so some people don't, you know, go running for the bomb shelter. But essentially, right. you usually have, depending on what is being fired and some crazy stuff is being fired like caliber missiles and other sort of seed missiles. So you might have three or four minutes before. So a typical thing, let's say the McDonald's that was hit uh, two nights ago, the sirens were going off uh, four minutes before the first missile hit. That's, you know, that's a concrete example that happened on June 13th. Did the, did the workers and the, and the people in the restaurant, did they, they heed those sirens? Uh, that one was at two thirty in the morning, luckily, so uh, it was open. But uh, you know, three people did die, oh. unfortunately. Um, the apartment building on June eleventh in Crevary, where thirteen people died, that was again in the middle of the night. So I, they were asleep, right? So if this, you see, you hear the sirens, you sort of are sleeping, and then you kind of wake up, and then you go back to sleep. I mean, I've 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 personally had this experience. I don't know hundreds of times where you're like, uh, you know, let's hope for the best, <laughs> roll back over. You know, and other people have told incredible stories that where I've I've visited apartment buildings that have been hit in the middle of the night where, let's say, the child made it to the shelter, but the parents didn't because, uh, you know, by the time they got the child awake and out, it was too late for them. So, you know, the the the, the answer to that question is limitless, uh, you know, sort of how many minutes do you have and how do you actually get out and, and you know get downstairs and get in, get underground it's uh, i've seen every kind of scenario and what what about the farming economy i mean the, the area you're in is pretty heavily agricultural um, was there was there any planting this season or yeah is, yeah is it, the, the farmers uh, continue right like so and ukraine plays this massive role in the world uh, with wheat and uh, soybeans and some other uh, staples right like so um it's uh, the watermelon actually the the Kherson region is famous for watermelon and they were planted and there's these little we're still a couple months off from you know the harvest season but they the small the small watermelons were all destroyed i think the number is 95 percent of the watermelon harvest was destroyed for the year um much of the much of the farmland in the east is has been mined or you know so you know where the areas that were liberated the farmers still can't sort of go out there so actually farmers are kind of operating these uh demining machines you know alongside uh the professionals to try and get their land to be arable again but in the west uh they continue to continue to operate you know the little land is uh is planted, so the wheat is planted, uh, the corn is planted, and it'll it'll they'll harvest it and move it, and you know hopefully that continues. Uh, but the you know and the answer to your question about work, yes, people go to work uh, every morning and they continue, and you know, obviously the, the economy has been devastated, but uh, you know people continue to wake up, go to the office um, in the west, let's say, and in the center, maybe Kiev, Odessa, as much as they can, but uh, along the, the front line, it's uh, 
you know, it's life is totally at a standstill. And the front line is massive, as you know. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's been talk in the press about the U.S. potentially sending kind of depleted uranium shells to work with the Abrams tanks that we've sent. Are people over there nervous at all about depleted uranium being in the breadbasket of, of the world? Like that to me seems like a, a tough combination. Or are they just so existentially focused on the war that they'll, they'll think about, you know, uh, resolving the depleted uranium problem? later. Yeah, I think everybody just wants this war to end, right? And so whatever it takes and whoever, you know, the, the thing about Ukrainians is they're, you know, sort of there there's like a national project here to get the Russians out and stop the war. No one wants the war to end, you know, tomorrow. They wanted it to end today. And people are are deferential like, you know, if the experts feel that this is a solution to to stop this war and and get the Russians out, then, I, then I'm for it. That's the sort of thing because it's, I think Bucha and Arpin sort of really changed Ukrainian public opinion and probably forever, you know, sort of when it came out with the mass graves and the murders of civilians and old people and children. And I was there, I was, I was in Bucha day two of liberation. So I, I saw the open, open mass graves and, you know, burned bodies on the streets. And I think that I think that's the sort of seminal experience for everybody. Obviously, the war has continued and the brutality has continued, but that uh, that understanding that um, Ukrainians really we <laughs> we can't we can't go on like this. And uh, so I think that, I think that's the immediate. That that's my understanding too. That Bucha, in particular, really changed the kind of course of, of the war. And you've you've had a lot of people who have kind of in a kind of conspiracy type way cast a lot of skepticism about what happened there. I'm I'm sure you've seen some of that stuff circulating. So having been there on day two, can you describe now, not, I don't want you to get gruesome or anything, but can you describe a little bit of like what you witnessed as you walked into that town? Yeah, I, uh, it was, uh, it was actually overwhelming. I've, I've been to mass graves. I was working in Bosnia digging up old mass graves. And again, Rwanda also, Syria also, Iraq also. But uh, this was something just on a, on a different level. And not, I didn't expect to see what I saw. At the time, uh, as you imagine, there were Russian snipers still in the woods because they hadn't completely withdrawn. They had ex- sort of exited quickly Bucha. So it was the security situation was, was very tense. So multiple roadblocks. But as we came closer and closer to entering Bucha, you would start to see 
charred dead bodies on the on the road. And as we got to the church um, where the uh, some of the mass graves were in the back of the church, we started to meet locals who lived under you know the occupation or for a month. And I, I went from house to house to people's houses and asking them what they experienced. And uh, it was very clear what had happened. And, you know, they told stories of, uh, you know, this neighbor and that neighbor and this, this 75-year-old man being murdered and uh, this eight-year-old girl being raped and murdered. And uh, Was there any pattern? Was there any pattern about who was who became a victim and who didn't it looked like the most uh the uh <laughs> the, the sort of most innocent people were, were were sort of victims it was it was truly bizarre uh, because when we went into house to house i would ask you know like who lived here and they'd tell me it was a 75 year old grandmother and grandfather and they, they, they killed the grandfather why and they said i don't know because it, you know this again was just day two and uh it was really raw, and uh, you've probably seen the images of all the burned uh, tanks and cars, and you know the road was was full of that, and um, it was just sort of pure brutality. When you went into houses, there were gunshots on inside all the houses, and I said, "What is that?" And they said they would just get drunk, and you'd see broken bottles of vodka and uh, whatever anybody had in their house. And you, the barbecue was like running in the backyard, and so I said, "So basically, they." spent the day at war and at night they'd come to the house and have a war with the house, um, you know, and just start shooting around. So it was just, uh, it was like some kind of like uh, Hollywood movie about terrorists or like crazy people, you know, like uh, just some post-apocalyptic type thing. I just, I just, I look at back at all the old pictures. I'm like, this is, this is nuts. And since then, is there any theory that's developed about like why that happened? Well, I mean, they've been doing the same stuff continuously, right? Like not at that level, but they, and, and I've heard the same stories from these villages where I am now on the, uh, when they were occupied, they were occupied for nine months. The November 8th was the day of uh, liberation. And there were, there are story after story of, uh, my friend was walking with a, with a jug of water down along the river and the sniper just shot him. Was, you know, you never find out why, why the sniper fired at him and shot him and he's dead, you know, sort of. So that's, uh, it's, they're, I don't know, I, I think they're just uh, reckless. I mean, you know, you want to be cliche about, but like uh, when you study Russian army tactics for the last 600 years, I mean, there's definitely a pattern of uh, you know, sexual violence and other things that I suppose are not uh, the norm for, for war. What is the, what is the thinking among people you meet about how this war is is going to end. You, you hear from Zelensky and you hear from other politicians in Ukraine that you know they want every Russian boot off of Ukrainian soil, including Crimea. And we hear that over in the United States. We're like, how is that going to be possible? That can't possibly be the way that this ends. There's got to be some other way to end. But is that is that is is you know what where where are the people that you talk to closer to? Are, are they? In, in lockstep with that, that Zelensky position. Yeah, yeah, that's where they are. Yeah, that's where they are. I, I, I guess it's like 85%. Uh, and again, that number comes from Bucha and Erpine and everything that's happened since then. Um, it's just like, how are we ever going to live with them again? Because if there is a truce and there's a ceasefire and they're just going to, you know, repower up and do it again, because, uh, you know, they 
it's in the West, it's very, very deep um, because you can go to any small village and find a memorial to a uh, kind of mini genocide of Ukrainian villagers by the Russians in you know 1864, or 1823, and you know people, like, the older people can tell you stories about uh, you know like mini pogroms uh, all over the place. And so that uh, that's been reinforced, and I think the constant attacks on civilian infrastructure uh, has reinforced that. That they just, you know, they want it to end, but they want it to end forever. They don't they don't want it to end. And ten years later, their children or grandchildren are are having to go to war. They just don't they don't want that. And that's that's kind of looking into the future. No one's you know they they just come to work every day and try and figure out how they can help to be a part of this greater society on this mission to end this thing. And at the same time, if you listen to American military officials here, they, they will say in unison that that's basically not possible. Like the taking of Crimea, the taking back of every inch. So like, how do you square that? Like, how does this, how does that tension resolve itself in, in your in your guess? I, I have no idea. I mean, I suppose that's the that's the uh, that's the job of the diplomats. I mean, I'm just I'm just a guy trying to help out. Uh, that's why I never. Right. That's why I quit the United States government and got out of that stuff because I'm not I'm not made for that stuff because I couldn't sit in the same room with most of these kind of people. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I don't even I don't think I could even walk into the United Nations like without like wanting to you know, hang myself or something. So. Yeah, I, I I really don't know. I mean, uh, obviously, the most important thing is to for them is to end the war and to feel like uh, justice has been served. And you know, I don't know. I don't think that means vengeance. I don't know if you saw this story, but I was pretty involved with it. The Ukrainians retained their humanity. They, there was a there was a Russian soldier that surrendered to a drone. The Ukrainians, uh, you know, and pleaded with him to to just surrender peacefully, and uh, they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't fire on him and, and, and it happened. And I, you know, every day I'm just struck by how gentle and kind um, these people remain in, in, in the face of this sort of brutality. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't know how, how the United States and the government and the Ukrainian government will, will reconcile, you know, as we go on, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to where they're coming from. Yeah, and that that there's a video of that that people can watch over at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's it's pretty incredible to see him him surrendering himself to this drone and then walking across this minefield, basically a no man's land, and the Russians start shelling him. Yeah, they st- and he actually said he signals um, that if I try to surrender, they will shell me, and uh, you know, sort of the Ukrainian military sent back that look, please. Please just do it, and you'll be safe, and you'll be in good hands, and and uh, you know everything will be okay. And he, you know, he he thought about it, and then came over, and and uh, the journal actually got access to him. I actually tipped off the journal on that story. Yeah, that was yeah, <laughs> uh, that was that was quite a story. Uh, send me send me the next one. Um, how'd you hear about it? <laughs> well, actually, I uh, I supply the uh, surveillance drones to that. Uh, that brigade. Oh well, there you go. It was the ninety second brigade. So uh, they, I, I was, I was on live uh, actually, while it was happening. <laughs> and uh, oh, you, and, you uh, were. What was, what was that like to watch that happening? Because for people who haven't seen it yet, and maybe people should pause it and go watch this. But like, he, he creates a language. The the Russian soldier like proposes hand signals to yeah. the drone. You know, if I yeah. do this twice, that's a no. If I do this, that's a yes. If and if the drone moves 
left to right, that's a no. If it moves up or down, that's a yes. Yeah. What was that like to watch in real time? Could you like, were you keeping up with him? Um, were you able to communicate with the people on the ground? Did they make those decisions independently or were there people who were like, yeah, you know, I was on with the people I was on the ground in a different town. So uh, I was being updated, uh, sort of shortly after they were making the decisions uh, because I'm not obviously a part of the decision-making process, but it happened very quickly. So there's a drone operator and there's his colleague and the colleague says to the drone operator, you know, do not fire on this guy. I think he's trying to tell us something. And then they figure out what he's trying to say. And they, they, you know, the great thing about, I think this is probably, you know, this is another thing that's amazing about the Ukrainians. It's just like sort of like what I wish an American sort of we used to be maybe, I don't know, entrepreneurial and stuff. You know, so they immediately get to their commander, right? Like, so I think like there's no bureaucracy. Like It's just literally like uh, the commander has to make this decision, uh, you know, they're the brigade commander. And uh, he immediately says, uh, please try and uh, and let them live. Like we, we, we we're not barbarians, right? We're not, we're not going to, go to the level of our opponent here we need to we need to take we need to let help this guy live and it all happened in minutes it was i was i was just all as always struck about the retention of humanity uh and as it were the uh the journal reporter happened to be in the area and i said uh <laughs> my friends have a great story and uh, you might want to hear about it and then they, they went on yeah and the uh soldier turned out to be Basically, just a liquor store owner. It seemed like uh, who was was drafted yeah. into the yeah, war. Yeah, no, there are, there are so many nutty stories. I mean, I've I've you know sort of been in the right place, or I don't know if you call it the right place or the wrong place at the wrong time, but uh, I've been around uh, some of these uh, prisoner of war stories, and uh, you know the people are you know one one guy <laughs> he was late on his his alimony payments or his child support payments. And, uh, you know, the Russians sort of said to him, you can either go to Ukraine or we're going to put you in jail. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if he was Wagner or if he was the actual army, but, uh, and I just was struck by listening to this. I'm like, this guy, <laughs> he led this, uh, irresponsible life. He couldn't take care of himself. And so he comes over here to kill uh, Ukrainian children. That's crazy. I mean, this is a, like war. War is just a terrible thing. It has to be avoided at all costs, but, there's just nothing good about it. What, what does that do to the dynamic where you have on the one side people who are defending their own territory, and, but then they're, and they're defending against people who are shooting at them and trying to kill them. And so it, it obviously is a very real live war, but oftentimes the people on the other side very much don't want to be there themselves. Like it's not their first, they are there, but it's not, it wasn't their first choice. They were kind of mobilized and forced into it. How does that change the, the dynamic. Well, it's very bizarre. It truly is. But, you know, again, the issue is that they're outnumbered and outgunned, right? Like from the Ukrainian side. So it doesn't, and that's what's enabled the Ukrainians to go on, I think, is because they're, they're, they're there for better reasons and they're doing this for the right reasons of defending their homeland, right? And so I think that's why, you know, while the results are, uh, I hope why we everybody wishes uh, it happened faster. I mean, the Ukrainians are doing a little bit better, and the reality is that they're outgunned by uh, you know I don't know what kind of multiple and outnumbered by what kind of multiple. You know, sort of in every battle, they 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 take significantly less casualties. I mean, every casualty is a, is really a tragedy. But uh, you know, the, like for example, in Bakhmut, uh, 
I was just outside of Bakhmut um, the day before there was a semi-Ukrainian withdrawal, and I, I talked to one of the soldiers who had just come out, and uh, he said it was it was it was beyond belief. There were literally hundreds of Russian soldiers just dead, and they've been there for days, and they don't take them with them. You know, they, they control that area, but they don't actually just remove them; they just leave them on the ground. And I thought, wow, that's uh, it's really just not good. What about the nuclear power plant that's near there? How how nervous are you about that? Well, it's uh, it's pretty. It's uh, you know I, I literally know nothing about this. I mean I, about nuclear. I, I don't think it sounds good though. Like, uh, but I suppose the UN chief is here today, the uh, nuclear uh, commission chief. So I hopefully they can come up with something because it uh, it's uh, obviously a ticking nuclear plant. I mean it's very it's very scary. It's not in Ukrainian hands, and it's just there. And what, I mean, last question, basically, what what do you think that you've been able to glean about the war in Ukraine that people in the U.S. are just missing? I don't know. I, you know, like, it's hard to know because I most of the time I've been here, so I don't really know what gets across and what doesn't get across. But the sheer brutality, the human impact is, uh, it's mind-boggling. It's overwhelming. And like I said, I mean, I... I went as a humanitarian to most U.S. wars, mainly because I felt guilty as an American about what the U.S. was doing in all these countries, and I've seen a lot of terrible stuff. But uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know that the human aspect of any of this is. I don't know if it's even covered because I think most most of the coverage is probably about the war, like the strategy and who's winning what, uh, who moved uh, like one kilometer ahead. I mean, I try not to read too much, but, uh, you know, obviously I don't see any video stuff, but, uh, you know, there's 40 million people who are traumatized, right? You can't, the, the trauma, the devastation, like the children, children who've lost their parents, parents who've lost children, like on the street, just walking in the park, you know, I go to these destroyed apartment buildings today. Uh, not today. When was I? Uh, yeah, it was June 11th. Was Krivari, the apartment building in Krivari. So I was there on the 12th, and there's a grandmother outside, and she lost everything, and probably a relative, and uh, with the stuff, and she's uh, hitting the pillow like to get the smoke out of it. And I'm just thinking, wow. I mean, this whole country, what they're going through on a daily basis, and the sirens, and you know rocket attacks, missiles, explosions, you hear them. Like, so no matter where you are, you, you go hear an explosion. Um, you know, every major city has been hit by an explosion, let's say in the last 10 days. So, you know, how do you, and that's, you know, it's a continuing thing, right? Like, so uh, it, it, it never ends. And so I think, I don't know, you have to be very empathetic, I suppose, to just sort of read that in the paper or watch on TV and then fully understand what that means. You know, I, I'm involved with a number of orphanages and uh, and children, like trying to help with prosthetics for uh, children who lost uh, limbs. And I just think like, you know, the mother, what does she go through? She's got to take the kid to the clinic every year to get a new prosthetic. Kid's life is totally different. I, you know, and just think of the story over and over and like uh, multiply it out. And I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't even know how to even phrase any of this stuff. Like it's it, it overwhelming tragedy and uh, devastation. Um, the physical stuff, it's it's there and it's terrible, but the human impact, it's it's terrible. Yeah, I, I don't think it could come across. I don't think there is the language or the channel that's open between between that world and the one that I'm sitting in here in the United States. It it, it feels 
almost un, unbridgeable. It's the chasm is the chasm is so. Yeah, great. I think I think you're right because you know, sort of when I'm home, I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm just looking around. If you really sort of live in their lives, you know, like 48 hours ago, I was in this bombed out apartment building. I, you know, I guess you know. I don't know. I suppose you, but I like, you know, where's the responsibility? Like, where's the accountability? Is it, uh, as human beings, shouldn't we all be concerned about this or should we all be concerned about our, the plight of our fellow human beings? But I guess not. I, I don't know if what's, uh, I mean, this goes to like human nature and long philosophical conversations, I suppose. But it's, it's just, uh, <laughs> to me, sometimes it's kind of an embarrassing time to be alive. I'm just like, I don't know how like people aren't just, uh, just completely outraged. It's nuts. It's just totally like this is this is in our lifetime stuff, you know, uh, for anyone who was interested in history, read about as a kid or watch movies. And we're like, oh, my God, that's, that's disgusting. Like, how are people allow that to happen? And, and here right. we are. And, and now at this time, we have access to this stuff. So sometimes people say, oh, you don't really hear about it. And I'm like, well, you, you could if you wanted to. You could hear more than you hear. Right. But uh, it's uh, it's 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 truly overwhelming. Well, thank you for taking some of your dwindling uh, Starlink time uh, to, to do what you can to bridge bridge it. Thanks. No, I appreciate uh, your time, Ryan. I'm a big fan of your work, so uh, keep up the good work. Well, thanks so much, and be, be safe over there. Thanks. Appreciate it. Take care. That was Ahmed Khan, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fairman. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. Go ahead and rate any episode that you want, even if you rated one already. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com or at ryan.grimm at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.